In the classic 1939 film called The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her three companions, the, the lion, the tin man, and the scarecrow, make their way to the Emerald City. And they're going there to get the help of the great and mighty Oz. Oz was a mysterious and powerful leader who supposedly had magical abilities. You see, they each needed something. The tin man wanted a heart. The lion wanted courage. The scarecrow needed a brain. And Dorothy wanted to go home. Well, they get to Oz and toward the end of the movie, to their shock and amazement, they discovered that the great and mighty Oz is just a little old man behind a curtain. He's working some contraption to make himself look like he's great and mighty, but he's not. He comes to them and sheepishly then begins to tell them that what they actually are seeking, what they don't think they can find on their own, they can actually find within themselves. They've already got it if they just look inside. The great Oz, who do you think he might represent? As I think back on this movie, watching it in my childhood and thinking on it now, perhaps this character Oz is meant to represent maybe a god who actually wasn't there. The message of the movie, maybe it's that you have the power within you if you'll just look inside. Self-empowerment, it's a message that you and I hear every week, every day almost. It's very familiar to us. We We hear it in the movies, we hear it in songs, we read about it in books, we see it on the television. And these ideas of self-empowerment, are they're common. They're common now, and actually they were common centuries and centuries ago, even millennia. The passage that we're looking at this morning, though, turns that idea of self-empowerment on its head. Instead, it shows us a God who is the focus of the entire creation, both seen and unseen. And it also tells us that we are people who need something desperately, but we can't find it within ourselves. We can only get it from this supreme and preeminent God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, that's in the New Testament. G.E. Power Company, C, Colossians. So it's right after Ephesians. That's the way I remember it. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This morning we're going to trace two themes through these six verses. The first is the preeminent Son of God. The preeminent Son of God. And the second is the peacemaking Savior. Our peacemaking Savior. Now before I go on and we begin looking at the passage, I, I want to talk about this word preeminent. Now, I'm using this word preeminent because it's found in the text, in the version that we're using, the ESV. But what does preeminent mean? I don't know if any of you all read this passage before today, and you you wondered, what is preeminent? Preeminent simply means supreme, surpassing all others. And so, we might use the word preeminent if we think about, let's say, sports, And we think about long-distance runners. We might say that East Africans and North Africans are the preeminent long-distance runners in the world. Or we might say that Albert Einstein is perhaps the most preeminent physicist of all time. Or if I were to ask you, who might be the preeminent expert on Mexican food in Dubai? Who would you tell me? Dave Furman, of course. You know what preeminent means, don't you? Well, Paul begins these amazing verses by making a startling statement. He says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15. You see, the scriptures teach us that no one has ever seen God. That's in John chapter 1 and many other places in the Bible. And though all people are made in his image, Jesus is the image of the Father. Jesus reveals the invisible Father. Now, we we all know children who look like their father or their mother, don't we? In fact, we could probably take all the youth from the youth group and we could line them up on one side. And then we could take all the fathers and mothers and put them on the other side. And if you didn't know them... You didn't know who belonged to who. You still could probably match them up, couldn't you? When I think about my own children, I I think about Emma. Emma has brown hair and green eyes. She's kind of in the image of me. My, My wife likes to remind me that she helped in the process. And that Emma is also beautiful and talented. We, we use sayings like, um, he's the spitting image of his father, or he's the spitting image of his brother. That's kind of a, a Western uh, saying in English. And in fact, those kinds of sayings are throughout the world in different languages. In fact, in Norwegian, if you were to say someone is kind of in the image of someone else, you might say, and this is translated into English, he is as blown out of the nose of. Some things don't translate very well. But Jesus 
is the exact image of the Father. You see, he's the image of the Father. He reveals the invisible Father because his character is the same as that of the Father. He's full of love. He's full of compassion. He's full of righteousness and moral perfection. And not only that, Jesus is full of the same purposes. He has the same purposes as his Father. His purposes are to glorify God and to rule as king and to give life and one day to be the judge. In Jesus, we see what we can't see in the invisible Father. Eric already welcomed many of you who were guests this morning. Maybe you've never been to Redeemer Church of Dubai. Um, I want to welcome you as well. And I particularly want to address some of those of you who have perhaps uh, joined us this morning. And you're not Christians. You've come here because a friend has invited you. Or maybe you've been coming for a while. You're exploring Christianity. And I just want to say I'm so glad you're here. We are delighted that you're here. And we want you to keep coming. We want to get to know you. But I want to ask you a question. Have you ever said to yourself, you know, if God would just reveal himself to me, I would believe. You know, if he would just show up and speak to me, then I could believe it. Do you see that Paul is telling us here that God has shown up? That God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ? You know, there was a follower of Jesus named Philip, and towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus had been talking about his relationship with the Father, and, and Philip, this exasperated disciple, says, Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. <laughs> We've heard you talk about him enough. How about if you just show him to us? And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. If you want to get to know God, if you want to see God as it were, get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. You know, this is why we often talk to people who are unfamiliar with Christianity. We tell them to go to the Gospels, those first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're they're essentially the biographies of Jesus from the perspectives of four different men who lived with him. If you've asked that question before, I want to encourage you to go to one of those books. Maybe, say, the book of Mark. And begin reading through it and ask yourself the question, who is this man? You get to the end, some of you will decide, I think correctly, that he is the image of the invisible God. And Paul follows this statement about Jesus with another startling statement. He says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, when when Paul uses this term, firstborn, he's not saying that Jesus was the first to be born. No, he's using the term firstborn as it would have been understood in a Middle Eastern context, which is that of a firstborn child in the family and the rights and position that they have. 
So in other words, the firstborn here means that he's the highest rank. He's the heir. He's the one who will receive the inheritance. And so Jesus, Paul is telling us, is the highest in rank above all of creation. And Paul goes on to describe this relationship to all of creation even more thoroughly. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Paul wants the Colossians to know that Jesus created everything. In heaven on earth would have, would have been a term that basically Paul was saying you, you, there is no other place. We're talking about the natural world. We're talking about the supernatural realm as well. Have you ever stopped to ponder and think about the fact that Jesus created everything? I mean, think for just a moment about space. You know, the, our universe, our universe is 150 billion light years wide. 150 billion light years. And now a light year, you understand, is the distance that you travel going at the speed of light. The speed of light, light can circle the earth seven times in a second. 150 billion years at the speed of light. And you know what? By the end of my sermon, it will have gotten larger. The Milky Way galaxy, for example, the galaxy, not the solar system, but the galaxy that our solar system is in, it has billions of stars in it. And if you were to take one second to count each star in the Milky Way galaxy, it would take you over 2,500 years to count them all. Our solar system, much smaller in the Milky Way galaxy. If you compare it to the galaxy itself, it's like taking a one, one dirham piece and laying it down in the middle of the continent of Africa. That's how they compare in size. The number of stars that you can see on any given night, let's say when you're out in the desert, especially here in Dubai, would be about 3,000 stars, and that's about the number of grains of sand that you can fit in a palm. And yet there's more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the seashores of the earth. And then if you just think about you, you, you are unique and original. You have a unique DNA code that no one has ever had and no one will ever have that duplicates you. No one. You are an original. And that DNA code has information and if you were to count and name each bits of that information one after another, it would take you 96 years to name all that makes up your genetic code. Jesus created all that. And he created all thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities as well. You see, there's no person, or power center, or authority that Jesus didn't create, or doesn't rule over. Nothing that, there's nothing that wasn't made for his glory and his purposes. And you know, it's amazing just to think that during the writing of this letter by Paul, Paul was sitting in a Roman jail, you see. He was sitting in a Roman jail, (laughs) And he could say that about Jesus, knowing that this Roman Empire which stretched from Spain all the way across the northern Mediterranean and down into North Africa 
was hugely expansive. That that empire was created by Jesus and for Jesus. Paul goes on to tell us, all things hold together by Christ. All things hold together. In fact, he's sustaining it now. You know, if he didn't, if he didn't sustain you and I right now, we would, we would fly apart at the molecular level and we would cease to exist. Everything would cease to exist. He upholds it. He sustains it. Jesus is intimately and constantly involved in sustaining all that he has made. It's not as if Jesus made it, wound it up, and set it loose and stepped back from it. No. It depends on him. Every single square inch of it. Because because we see in this passage that what Paul is telling us that Jesus made all of creation, he made all of matter, we know that there's no real divide between the things that are sacred and the things that are spiritual. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You see, sometimes we begin to think that Jesus is, he's only interested in our spirits. He's only interested in internal things in us. Quote, unquote, where our heart is. Of course he's interested in that, yes. But we start reducing it to that. And when we do that, we, we come in danger of not submitting our everyday lives to him. So the faith that we have and the things that we think God is interested in become reduced to things like religious meetings and maybe churchly duties. Faith becomes only Bible study and prayer, if we can fit that in. And it becomes easy not to acknowledge God or to obey him in things like our workplace, our marriages, our parenting, our sexuality, what we do with our free time. You see, if Jesus is preeminent over all of creation, then he is certainly Lord over every single bit of your life and my life. Do you find yourself living two separate lives Maybe one among church friends or other Christians that you encounter and you know, and then the rest of your life differently among the people that you live and work with? Are you you slipping into thinking that if you just attend church and read a bit of the Bible or offer up prayer at times, that, that those are the little duties that Jesus wants you to do? Who are you when no one is looking? No, Jesus is Lord of all creation and so Lord of all our lives. So be ethical at work. Treat each person around you like you know that Jesus made them and is sustaining them. Treat your spouse with love and respect. Not with harsh words or careless speech or God forbid physical abuse. Jesus is there with you in your home. Don't be overly harsh with your children on the one hand, nor should you let them go undisciplined on the other. Both of these sins deny that Jesus is Lord of creation. Be careful what you watch and what you listen to in your spare time and who you recreate. Ask yourself, are they influencing me or am I influencing them? 
Paul even says in the book of Romans that we eat and drink to the glory of God. So Jesus created you and I, and he's sustaining us even now. All of your life is by him and for him. And that brings us to the next theme, actually, in these verses. The first theme in the first three verses primarily was that of the preeminent Son of God. And now Paul shifts the focus to Jesus, our peacemaking Savior. So if those first three verses have as its theme, Jesus is the preeminent over all of creation, then this tells us in these next three verses that Jesus is preeminent in the work of reconciliation and recreation. And he begins, of course, with the church. He says in verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. You see, Jesus is the ruler of the church. And he, like all of creation, he's sustaining it. And we, the church, are as dependent on Christ as a body is dependent on a head. Okay? Even in zombie films, a body can't survive without a head. So we know that for real people, alive people, bodies can't survive without a head. And so it is for us. The church here is referring to God's people down through all of time who have repented of their sin and put their trust and faith in Christ. They've, they've, be, they've been born again. You see, it's, it's, the church is not a building. And, and the church is not even necessarily a legal institution. So in some countries you can go and, and as a church you can incorporate. You know, you can become a legal institution. It's written on a piece of paper. But biblically, that piece of paper isn't a church doesn't make a church. That's simply for the authorities. The Bible is clear that a church is a group of repenting believers in Christ who sin under the correct preaching of the Bible and practice things like baptism and communion and church discipline. And so even though this passage refers to what we call the church universal, all believers everywhere throughout history... We also know that the local church is who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the church in Colossa, which was a place in central Turkey with a group of people that gathered regularly to worship Jesus. It was a particular group of people at a particular point in time in a particular place. They were a local church. And so as much as that church in Colossa could count itself as a part of the church universal... Jesus Christ is their head as well. Jesus Christ was the head of the church at Colossae. And that's true for our church as well. Redeemer is ruled and sustained by Christ. He's, He's not far away and waiting for us to wrap up what we're doing in Dubai here with church and then report back into him at some later time. No. He is he's intimately involved in what we're doing. He's, he's the head that's a part of this local body. You know, here at Redeemer, we, we believe that each member of Redeemer Church has a role in ruling the church. We believe that that's what the scriptures teach, that God has given a role to each member of the church to rule. Yes, Jesus has given leaders 
the Bible explains those to be elders and deacons, and they're to lead, but they're to rule along with all the members of the church. The congregation rules. So tonight, Eric reminded you, those of you who are members, that we have a members meeting. We gather at that members meeting, not just because Dave or the elders have said, hey, we want you at this, uh, at this members meeting. We gather to bring glory and honor to Jesus and to be responsible with who he has made us to be as a church. He's the head. We're the body. So those of you who are Redeemer members of this church, I want to encourage you to take your role seriously. Christ has put you here in this body. And he's given you a charge to rule for his glory and his name. I, I want to encourage you to come. Come tonight. To come to the members meeting. Make them a priority. Come and pray with us. Get to know the new member candidates. It's your responsibility under Christ's headship to vote on bringing them in. It's your responsibility under Christ's headship to consider the needs of the church and serve throughout the weeks as we gather. And it's your responsibility to pray and participate if we need to deal with discipline as well and all the other roles that we play together as his body. Now, some of you I want to speak to, not necessarily members, but anyone who's here. Do you find yourself sometimes thinking, you know, I don't really want to say it to other people, but I kind of dislike the church. I mean, you like Jesus, I get it, but you dislike his church. The church is another story. But listen, if you dislike the church, then you dislike something that Jesus considers a part of himself. I mean, you can be disappointed in the church as... I am sometimes, and you should be as well. We're a group of repenting sinners, and we disappoint ourselves, even even the people around us. But you can't claim to love Jesus the head and not love his body, the church. Repent of that sin. Love the church. Love the church as Christ has loved the church. Paul continues to tell us Jesus is not only the head of the church, his body. He says Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Now what Paul is saying here when he says the beginning is he means that Jesus is the beginning of God's recreation of everything. So we talked about the creation in the first three verses, and now we're talking about the recreation that has begun and will continue. And there we see that phrase again, that phrase firstborn. But this time, Paul says, he's the firstborn from among the dead. And what Paul is saying with that phrase is basically using the same definition for the term firstborn, but he's saying he's the highest in rank, he's the heir above all those who will be raised from the dead. It's a reference to Jesus' resurrection. You see, Jesus is going to be the supreme leader when the new heavens and the new earth are created, just as he's the supreme leader of the church right now. He's he's Lord over the recreation, the new creation. He goes before all of us who will be resurrected. 
His resurrection is the beginning and the power of all that will be made new. Jesus created at the beginning of time, and Jesus is recreating the church. Do you remember that verse that says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation? Behold, the old is past, the new has come. And Jesus will recreate the heavens and the earth. Do you know that in Romans 8 it says, the creation groans waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed until essentially it can participate in the redemption that's going to take place. And all of this that Paul has said from the verse 15 all the way down to verse 18 is so that Jesus might be preeminent. He's preeminent in the creation. He's preeminent in the recreation. He is Lord of all. Now the next verse. The next verse is is perhaps one of those most mind-boggling verses of the whole Bible. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's worth many, many sermons, actually. Jesus was not even one little bit less than the Father. He wasn't simply close to God. He wasn't uh, similar to God. No, if Paul hasn't spelled it out for us in all the descriptions from verse 15 on down, he says it loud and clear right here. Jesus is fully God. So you know what? We don't just look up to him. We don't just admire him. You know, it's hard to find someone. It's hard to find someone who looks down on Jesus. (laughs) You know, many people who aren't Christians, you say, what do you think about Jesus? And they say, well, Jesus was an amazing teacher. Some people say Jesus was a prophet. Some people even raise him above that and put him up into kind of the supernatural realm. Though not God. We don't look at Jesus and just admire him. No, we worship him. We worship Jesus. These truths about Jesus should move us to bow down before him, perhaps even literally at times, to show our submission and our love and our worship for him. He's infinitely worthy. He's he's not just our mascot. He's our master. Do you worship Jesus? Can you say that to him? I worship you, Jesus. Do you bow down before him with your whole life? You know, it's almost December. And we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. I hope, I hope that you'll be meditating on this verse and the wonder of it. Verse 19. That that baby born to Mary, laying in a feeding trough in a poor neighborhood in a small town called Bethlehem, in a backwoods, out-of-the-way place called Palestine, he was the God of all creation. You You may be traveling this December, you may have shopping to do, you may have guests coming to visit like we do, and you may want everything to be just right, but don't miss pondering and proclaiming 
this great mysterious truth, especially this season. Take advantage of it and invite people of all faiths to come and join us at our Christmas service, perhaps. Ask your friends and your neighbors if they know the reason why we celebrate Christmas. You know, as familiar as some of you all are with Christmas, there's so many people here in Dubai that don't really know. All they see are maybe the trappings of Western materialism that have migrated here. Ask them if they know. And if they don't know, especially, open a Bible with them. Read those stories with them. And then maybe even turn to Colossians. Or Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The child of Bethlehem was the God of the universe, no doubt. You know, there's a warning here too in these verses, in this verse in particular. Just as there were teachers in Paul's day that were beginning to tell the church at Colossae that they needed to add something to Jesus in order to get the most out of what Jesus had to offer. Um, Just as they were saying that, there's people like that today. And in doing that, they actually reduce Jesus. If you add anything to Jesus and say, that's what we need for salvation, that's what we need to be reconciled to God, then you reduce Christ. You see, and so people that believe those kinds of things, they're active in Dubai, in the UAE, actually. Some of them are friends of mine, maybe friends of yours. Maybe, maybe you were even a part of their organizations. You see, the group called Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons deny the full deity of Jesus, the full eternal deity of Jesus. They deny it. And so when they do that, they set, them, they set themselves apart as not Christian. They may sound like Christians. They may even quote things from the Bible. They, they may be very moral people, very kind people. But to, not, to deny Jesus his place of preeminence, as Paul states it here in these verses, is to reject the Jesus of the Bible. You need to be wary and careful and not be convinced by these people around you. And you know what? There's a clear and easy test when you encounter a group or a person that says they're from a church maybe that you've never heard of. And you're wondering, where do they stand? Are they a group that has Bible beliefs like they teach at Redeemer or other good churches here in Dubai? There's an easy test, and that test is to ask this question. Do they think less of Jesus than Paul does in this passage? Do they they take something away from Christ that the Bible that we know gives to him? Is he equal to them, equal to the Father and the Spirit? That's the key question. What do they do with Christ? What do they say about him? Ask that question of the people and be wary. And it's all the more important to know what groups like that or what anyone like that thinks about Christ because of what Paul tells us in verse 20. He says... And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This Jesus, this Jesus is our peacemaking Savior. Now, Paul 
talks here about needing to be reconciled. Needing to be reconciled to him, Jesus, and the Father, and the Spirit. But why? He hasn't told us anything else in these verses about it. You see, when you talk about people needing to be reconciled, you're obviously talking about people that are not at peace. They're at war. And so, though Jesus is preeminent in all of creation, all is not right in creation, is it? There's war afoot. Hostile parties are opposed to one another. And we, in fact, were once hostile to God, as are all people. The relationship between God and mankind, his creatures, was ruptured. was ruptured. And each one of us, of course, has participated in that rebellion. What? Me? You say? Not me. No, no, I've always loved God. I've always loved God. Have you? What if I were to read out God's law to you and ask, uh, have you obeyed his law from birth till now? Completely and totally. What if I were to remind you that to hate in your heart is the same as murdering? And what if I were to remind you that to chase after possessions and be jealous of your neighbor's belongings or your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband or anything your neighbor has is to sin in coveting? Or what if I were to remind you that you'll be held accountable for every careless word that you utter? What if I were to tell you that none of those deeds of kindness done will earn you any credit with God? You feel a little rise within you when I start reading God's law to you? Maybe a little anger? A little hostility? At least a little bit, oh, I don't like that. But those are God's, those are, those are the Bible's rules, you say. That, that's not God. Ah, no, no, it's God's law. It's God's law, you see, and God's laws are a, a moral, principled expression of his goodness and his holiness, his character. See, so if you're hostile to God's laws, then you're hostile to God. You can't love God and hate his laws. And this is the situation of every person who has ever lived. Now, what would you do if you were this God who had created everything? You were preeminent. You were the heir. You were supreme. And those that you had created, the crowning achievement of your creation, human beings, you had made them in your image, they were all at war with you. What would you do? I tell you, none of us would do what this God did. None of us. He took the initiative and won amnesty and forgiveness for us while we were still warring against him. He shed his blood on the cross, blood that we should have shed. He died a death. He died a death in our place to reconcile us to himself. He paid the price for our treason against God. And so he became our peacemaking savior. I don't know if you've noticed it in these verses, beginning with 15 and on down, that 
Paul began by telling us the scope of Jesus' rule and authority over everything, everywhere, for all time. And now he's drawn us in these verses down powerfully to one place on the planet where an amazing Jewish man was crucified on a Roman cross. One moment, one afternoon. Do you see what this verse teaches us? And all of these verses for that matter? That all of history and the future turn on the hinge of the cross of Christ. That day is the turning point of all of time. When God in Christ willingly shed his blood, the power to reconcile any person to God was set loose. And the power to make all things new in heaven and on earth was displayed. You know, what looked like on that day a shameful defeat was in reality the greatest victory ever. Because Christ shed his blood in obedience to the Father, the Father gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. And he exalted him. He's enthroned him. And then it's from this position of power and preeminence from which He will gather his church. Those of us who have acknowledged him and repented and put our trust and faith in him. He will gather us to himself one day. And he will subdue all continuing rebellion against him. So for the church, that peace that he has made, it will be a joyful conclusion for us on that day. To what he's begun in us. And made possible by the cross. But for those who remain in rebellion against him. The peace will be an enforced peace. A forced submission ending with eternal punishment. Which way will you be reconciled to this preeminent son? Willingly? Worshipping Him then as you do now. Repenting of your sin. Coming into His church, His body. Glorifying Him through the proclamation of the gospel. And living lives that adorn the gospel and point to its truth and power. Or will you bow the knee in forced submission? You can change that today if you will only turn to him in faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you are the preeminent son of God, full of glory and power, the one who made all things. And we praise you most of all that you are our peacemaking Savior. We thank you that you died to make it possible for us to be reconciled to yourself, even while we were at war with you. We owe you everything. Amen.